BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink, is hitting the mainstream media circuit and he's pumping Bitcoin. Bankless Nation, happy first Friday of July. It is time for the Bankless Weekly Roll-Up. This is a, a first of its kind. David is out this week. He is going climbing up mountains. I think he's got three mountains over the next uh, 10 to 15 days he's going to climb. So I am here with Anthony Sassano, and we are taking the roll-up to you this week. Anthony, this is the first time you and I have done this, uh, so I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, I'm, pr I'm pretty excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, me too, me too. Thanks for having me on again. But yeah, I've only ever done these with David, so uh, definitely excited to do one of these with you finally. So um, last week was, of course, the 4th of July in, in the US. So a lot of people um, had off, took a holiday. Is there like a, a, an equivalency in Australia? Is there like a, you know, Independence Day equivalency or, or how did this work, work out in Australia? You didn't have to rebel against uh, the Brits, did you? <laughs> no, no. I mean, technically, we're still a colony, uh, or uh, it, which is funny. We tried to become a republic ages ago, but it didn't happen. Um, so uh, we have like royal assent and things still like that. It's just, it's kind of weird. But uh, we have Australia Day, which is like in January, in late January. But I don't think it's on the actual day like that we got our independence. And as I said, technically, we're not actually like fully independent. Um, but but yeah, we do have ties. like people do, bar do barbecues because it's summer in January here. And and things like that. It's definitely something that people celebrate, but it's not to the extent that Americans do it. You guys are crazy around July 4th. Yeah, America goes crazy. I, I grew up in Canada, actually. And so there's um there's a Canada Day on the 1st of July, and it's much more mm -hmm. muted than when you come to the US the 4th <laughs> I didn't even hear about it on Twitter or anything. So <laughs> right, yeah, I know. <laughs> there you go. Much more <laughs> muted. Anyway, we got some hot topics of the week, a lot of things to discuss this week. The first on my mind, Anthony, is uh, Larry Fink the CEO of BlackRock, he's suddenly become a Bitcoin stan, all right, versus five mm -hmm. years ago when he seemed to hate it. So we're going to talk about that. I also want to talk to you about NFT prices. NFTs are down real bad. There's some tweets that kind of show this, but we can also look at the, the price charts. I want to ask, get your take on it. Can they recover is a question today. Uh, there was a rumor that Gary Gensler was resigning. Is that all fake news? What's going on there? Uh, Cameron Winklevoss, sent a final letter to Barry Silbert. This is the final, final letter, I think, Anthony, asking for his money. Like, you better give me my money, Barry. <laughs> or else bad things are going to happen. We'll talk about that. And lastly, of course, the building season continues, particularly, I think, Layer 2 season. Coinbase Layer 2, the base launch. There's some news on that. We're also going to talk about Polygon V2, the upgrades there. And a question I want to pose to you, Anthony, will Solana become a Layer 2? Actually, Anatoly of Solana, uh, answered that question. I want to get your perspective on it. So uh, you ready for all that? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. Well, before we begin, uh, Bankless Nation, also want to mention ETHCC. This is a, a conference that is upcoming in July, actually. If you have a ticket to that, there will be a Bankless event. If you are a citizen, make sure you check that out. That's on Tuesday, July 18th. It's called Bonjour Bankless. Uh, we are hitting Paris with the Bankless Nation. David's going to be there. A whole bunch of people from the Bankless Nation are going to be there. So make sure you check that out. Uh, this event was sponsored by our friends at uh, Sega. Uh, so go check that out. Um, they have a yield product as well. And then also wanted to bring your attention to, if you can't make ETHCC, of course, the big event to go to is Permissionless. The second Permissionless conference we've ever hosted. This is happening in Austin, Texas, September 11th through the 13th. Uh, this is the conference to go to. I'm going to this one. Uh, it's fantastic whether you are a builder, um, a DeFi aficionado, a crypto native of any type. 
this is the conference to go to. We've got a fantastic list of speakers, uh, people like Eric Voorhees, people like Hester Peirce, um, people like uh, Tom Emmer, all sorts of folks that you've heard on the podcast coming live in person. So there'll be a link in the show notes and you can get your ticket that way. Um, all right, Anthony, let's talk markets. We got to start with our friend over there. We still start with Bitcoin on Bankless. Anthony, you, you probably don't mm-hmm. on the Daily Gway. You're like, you know, like starting with ETH. But um, got to talk about Bitcoin. Current price right now, as of the time of recording, is uh, $30,898. Of course, this will be very different by the time you listen to it. We are up about 2.4% on the week. What do you think of this Bitcoin chart, just in general? If we kind of uh, zoom out a little bit, Anthony, how does uh, how does this chart look to you? It looks like there's a new narrative in play right now, which we all know is kind of the ETF hype, right? It looks like mm. the market finally had a reason to go up and finally something that people could latch onto. And that has continued to, I guess, play out, especially with comments from Larry Fink this week, which we're going to cover, of course. Um, and I think people have just latched onto that and especially traders who love the volatility, right? Whenever, whenever there's a, a new narrative around, they love to kind of uh, cause volatility in the markets and, and play on that in order to, to make money. So I, I definitely think that's reflecting that. But also, I mean, there was um, news a few days ago that Sailor bought like another, what, $250, $300 million worth of BTC. Yeah, he did. (laughs) So that definitely played a part in it as well. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's kind of, the the chart still looks neutral to me. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like, there's we we can kind of point to the reasons why it's bullish and ironically that's sometimes bearish for me because it means that everyone knows the reasons why it's going up <laughs> so they're like trying to play you know the markets and things like that so i i don't know I, i'm still very kind of neutral uh, right now on on the whole crypto market but i do think it shows early signs of uh, of uh, of a bull market potentially forming early signs of a bull market but you are are still feeling neutral about it is this kind of this chop is this uh, traders playing trader games like it feels like from what you're saying and i guess my own feeling reflection on it is we haven't seen a new set of buyers right so so you just mentioned it's old michael saylor dollar cost averaging in of course that's what he's been doing for the last mm-hmm. uh, two years um it's traders maybe playing this etf narrative game and by the way we'll get to it later in the episode but there was news that gary gensler resigned right like this mm-hmm. week and that hit uh twitter and y- you kind of wonder whether that was planned by someone or not to to make some money on some of this volatility some of this trading activity but is it the case in your mind that until we get net new buyers, Bitcoin is kind of just going to be like this crab market side to side, up, down, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think obviously you need net new money coming in for the price to go up. Like you can't have the price. I mean, the price isn't really going to go up too much if it's just the same money sloshing around. Uh, it's kind of like professional poker. If, if everyone's the if everyone's as good as each other, not not many people are going to be able to make much money from that. So <laughs> you you need you need the noobs to make money from right. Like that's it, it's 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 the same in I think every market is where you like the more experienced people do better than the less experienced people. Um, but the less experienced people, are the ones that bring in the you know the fresh money and they buy indiscriminately. But generally, yeah, I mean, if you look at the shorter time frames, it's always just going to look very choppy, right? Um, you're on the kind of like hour chart here. I'm looking over the the past couple of weeks. It's pretty choppy. But 
as I said, I think that the the market um, definitely is running on a narrative right now. And if that narrative runs out of, of steam, it might sell down again because it was just traders playing that narrative. Uh, but then, you know, eventually it'll start going back up because of those net new buyers. But yeah, I'm not seeing any signs of like a huge influx of new money right now. Um, maybe here and there is a little bit, but yeah, I'm definitely not seeing like people coming in in, in, in mass and being like, I'm going to buy everything, right? I'm going to buy Bitcoin, I'm going to buy ETH, I'm going to buy all this other stuff. That hasn't happened yet. Okay, uh, let's talk about ETH. I'm guessing it tells a similar story. We are at the time of recording at uh, 1919. That's up 4.8% on the week. So a bit higher than Bitcoin's 2.4%. Um, does this chart tell a similar story, Anthony? Is mm -hmm. um, ETH just basically trading like, like Bitcoin in kind of this crab market territory? Mm -hmm. I think so. I think uh, it's just following Bitcoin on the USD pair. Um, on ETH BTC, it, it, the ETH BTC tells the real story where it's come down from like 0.07 and went down to almost 0.06 based on the, the ETF stuff, which is obviously more positive for Bitcoin from a narrative point of view than it is for, for ETH. Even if you believe ETH is going to get an ETF, it doesn't matter because the narrative is obviously centered around Bitcoin. Um, but I think, you know, ETH BTC has been stuck in this range for a long time, like 0.06, 0 0.07, um, which, you know, it's, 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 it's quite an annoying range, but I don't think anyone trades it. I think what they trade is BTC and ETH and you just reflect you can see the different narratives reflected in the ETH BTC ratio um, and the different kind of like trader mindsets reflected in it as well. So Anthony, we were talking um, prior to the recording and, and you said something interesting. You said that um, you believe actually the bull market maybe began a month ago and, and now it's mm -hmm. just a matter of getting the world to realize that and getting the world to kind of um, wake up to that. Uh, what did you, what do you, what did you mean by that? So, I mean, I mentioned before that I'm I'm neutral and I still am neutral for probably the rest of, of this year, but bull markets can begin without you realizing that they've begun until like 12 months down the line, but you're like, wow, okay, that's when the bull market began, right? Um, and I think this this ha has happened every cycle within crypto. And the reason I think it, I mean, there's a few different reasons. Uh, there's a big reason is, is gut feel. After being in the ecosystem for a very long time, you, you tend to have a gut feel about these things. And my gut has actually been pretty good over the last few years, especially for both timing kind of tops and bottoms of, of the market. Um, but obviously, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to get everything right. But a major reason why I I, um, I've, I thought this over the last maybe few weeks is the ETF stuff. I think that there has definitely been a big kind of like wind change. And I, and I discussed this a little bit with David on the last roll up I did with him. But there's been a wind change where it's, it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, these TradFi institutions, they're not only saying that they're going to get involved with crypto, they're directly making actions. And it's not just anyone, right? It's BlackRock, which as everyone knows by now is the largest asset manager in the world. So when you have those kind of things happening um, and prices has actually been relatively muted, I think as well, you can kind of say, okay, well, you know, in 12 months, we're probably going to look back on this and think, okay, that's when the bull market kind of started. That's when the early, early, early signs were. Yes, it took a while for the market to become convinced. And yes, the price still kind of crabbed around, went sideways, chopped around. Um, but I think that you can, you know, revisit in, in 12 months or something like that and, and look back on, on it. But, you know, and, and that's why I think it's so hard for people to pick it because a bull market can start and the price can still go down. I know that's a, it's a, it's a funny thing to say, but it's all about kind of timing it. And if the price is just range bound um, and the bull market actually did begin, but buying in that uh, uh, buying in that range was actually positive, you know, six, 12 months down the line because the bull market had began, uh, had begun, sorry. Um, I think that is uh, is the way you'd play it. Um, and, and, you know, it's not me saying that in the next couple of months, Bitcoin or Ether going back to all time high. I don't think so. Um, but I, I do think that we're in the convince the market that it's not a bear market any, uh, phase anymore.
Well, I think one of the things that could convince the market is, is you know, um, the even the narrative of the ETF getting approved. If an ETF gets approved, that will prove to everyone else that we've sort of hit a, a, a bottom on a regulatory FUD, right? B basically, mm -hmm. I mean, I think part of the story of 2023 is like, seems like the US is out to get crypto, right? And if we have major financial institutions like Fidelity, like BlackRock that have an ETF approved, you can no longer support that narrative, right? It, it looks a bit more nuanced. It looks a bit more mixed. Yes, maybe um, U.S. regulators will be hard in crypto in some areas, but they're clearly not going to like ban the asset class. And that is sort of the, the worst of the FUD that we feel. So I think it has that effect uh, as well. But what do you do in these types of like uh, crab markets? Do you trade at all? Like do you trade kind of uh, on the weekly or are you just, uh, you know, stacking no. away? No, I, I don't. I don't trade. I, I definitely don't trade. I, I, funny enough, I do more trading in bull markets where I, where I kind of see an opportunity to rotate out of things into other things. Um, and you know, I do that over longer time frames. I never do day trading or, or week by week. But let's say I've held an investment for a while and it's gone up a lot, but ETH hasn't gone up a lot yet, right? I think to myself, well, okay, I better take these profits and then take them into ETH rather than going um, to cash. So I do a little bit of that in bull markets, and it's worked well for me historically. But uh, generally, no, I, I don't trade. I definitely do not trade the daily or weekly. Um, and what I was talking about before about my gut feeling, that's like on a year time scale. That's definitely not like a short term thing. That's a long term thing where I have to basically pay attention for a long time. And then eventually my gut will start saying, hey, hey, it's, you know, it's a bear market <laughs> or hey, it's a bull market. And then I listen to it and it usually goes all right. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe the bull market doesn't start for another couple of years or something. I, I don't know. But that's just kind of my gut feel based on, you know, based on various things that have happened over the past few months, especially. And the regulatory stuff is actually very important. I've maintained for a long time that I, I never thought that the US was actually trying to kill crypto. Mm -hmm. um, and I've maintained that I feel like a lot of what Gary Gensler has done has just been for personal benefit. I don't think he actually hates crypto. I think he just knows that crypto was an easy target to get nice headlines for himself. Um, and I think that's actually been the case because you don't have Larry Fink, a huge Democrat backer, by the way, um, being positive on crypto while Gary Gensler, a Democrat appointed SEC chairman, being negative on it. Who's going to win in that world? Who do you think's going to win? It's the guy with the money, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I think Larry Fink is uh, more of a puppeteer of the of, of the politics than than Gary Gensler. Um, but okay, so let's um, let's talk about another chart here. Which and I I was actually shocked to to see this because I don't typically look at um, stocks very much, Anthony. Mm -hmm. So um, do you know the Nasdaq is like ten percent off its all time highs? Like that's crazy. Mm -hmm. So Nasdaq uh, fifth over fifteen thousand this week. Um, what's your take on that generally? We're we're back to kind of like the the stimulus check, like COVID highs almost. Is this unexpected, or what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely not an expert on like the stock market, and I don't really spend much time looking at it. But I I have kind of maintained a position for a while that because the economy, um, not the economy, sorry, the stock market is so closely kind of intertwined with retirement accounts and money just keeps going into retirement accounts, obviously. Um, I feel like the stock market can't actually go down for very long because you have that kind of buyer there, that always buyer of the of the retirement accounts that are, that are ready to buy whenever. And 
if you look at the stocks, uh, sorry, if you look at the indexes as well, it can be a little bit misleading because, for example, not the NASDAQ, but the S&P 500, there's like 10 stocks in that that account for most of the, the market share. And those are the, the strongest stocks like Apple and Amazon, things like that, right? So they can skew the data. But if you actually look at a lot of the individual stocks, especially the ones that were really popular during 2021 and, and 2020, uh, you know, the COVID boom uh, sort of thing that happened there, a lot of them are down as much as some crypto coins are down like 90 plus percent uh, because they were just completely overvalued. They went through the same thing that, that the crypto market did. Uh, but in terms of of things like strong companies like Apple and stuff like that, yeah, of course they're gonna you're gonna go back up. There, there's a bid there for that, right? People, you know, Apple is not a not a super speculative stock like uh, like like an early stage kind of tech company that just IPO'd or something. So yeah, th there's a lot of that going on. But I, I think a huge yeah a huge um, portion of buying for these things comes from retirement accounts, and there's trillions of dollars in that, obviously. Obviously, you know, BlackRock is the one money manager of, of those kind of things. And so, is a, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of others out there. So that that's my general take on it. Uh, but then you have the other side of it where a lot of the macro pundits are saying, you know, this is a dead cap bounce. We're going back down because of all this, all, all this economic data here. You know, things are going to blow up. The inflation is going to come back, you know, roaring back and the Fed's going to have to raise rates to such and such. I, I don't know. I, honestly, I don't listen to those people because I just don't have enough insight into these things to know who to believe. But at the same time, I try to avoid people who just think in binaries. Like it's a lot of doomerism out there still for some reason. But yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, very interesting that if you listen to kind of macro pundits, uh, even kind of the inflation, the story of inflation, right? A lot of macro folks thought that inflation would be even a bit more persistent right now. And here we are down to 4%. And you can kind of look at, uh, Maybe, maybe the five-year chart here is uh, we definitely took a pop up to close to 10%, and now we're back down to 4%. And so there's sort of this macro debate. We had uh, Raul Paula on the podcast earlier this week, and he's a big believer in actually <laughs> deflation. Like He doesn't think mm -hmm. we're going to see an inflationary decade. He doesn't think the demographics point that way. Um, he doesn't think that uh, you know like technology will be a deflationary force. And that will overcome some of the the inflationary forces here. So there's this, um, I guess, there, there's these two camps that 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 try to push either inflation or, or deflation. I think your perspective has always been, hey, it doesn't matter. Like, don't worry about macro so much. Mm -hmm. Like, just regardless of inflation or deflation, we know that the government is going to continue to um, print money. And we know that we're in for a decade of fiat de debasement where we have 0% or negative real returns, most likely negative real returns on bonds. And in that climate, you want a non-state asset of some type. You want an ether in your portfolio. Is, is that kind of still your take? It's just like ignore the macro noise. Do you, do you really do you, do you take that into account at all when you're when you're thinking about uh, when to buy and how to invest in this space? Yeah, definitely. I I don't think I've ever actually looked at macro kind of things and applied them to crypto and used them as a way to, you know, trade with within crypto, buy or sell things. Um, you know, if if you the on the inflation chart, if you look at where it peaked, it peaked around June, I think, of last year, which was the eighth bottom. I did not buy ETH because I thought inflation peaked. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you that much. I bought ETH there because I Again, that gut feeling I had um, based on a number of different factors, like I saw 3AC puking up all of their ETH because they had all these debts they had to pay. I saw these, you know, the amount of fear in the market. I saw fear. the, the, the so much ETH fear. getting, yeah, exactly. I, I saw ETH getting oversold and I not once looked at inflation and, and was like, <laughs> oh, wow, inflation's like nearly 10% still. Maybe it's not a good time to buy ETH. No, yeah. I, I didn't look at that at all. So I, I generally maintain that crypto is largely kind of 
outside of the scope of, of the macro environment, um, at least for now, just because it's still relatively small and it's still got a lot of growth ahead of it, uh, definitely. And, and and as you said, like it is non kind of like state backed money for, for things like BTC and ETH, which is even more, I guess, like powerful now where uh, a whole new generation has woken up to the fact that the, the economy generally is in very delicate balance and at any time it can get thrown out of balance to any extreme degree. And if you want to protect your wealth, if you want to make sure that, you know, one year you are and you have um, you know such and such amount of money, and then the next year you actually have the same purchasing power, at least the same purchasing power, right? Even though all your bills have gone up, you're not going to get that from fiat. Fiat is literally designed not to give you that. That's why everyone invests their money. That's why you're encouraged to invest your money. And that's why retirement accounts don't just hold fiat, right? <laughs> they they invest the money. Um, so yeah, I, I think the whole new generation, um, probably Generation Z, to be honest, they're just coming, a lot of them have come into adulthood recently and have got come into money, obviously, from working jobs, uh, full-time jobs, things like that. They've they've been kind of crypto pilled, I think, over the, over the last couple of years for sure. Yeah, certainly. Um, it did not what what you choose to denominate, what you choose to store your wealth in, is actually a much more difficult decision uh, these days, and mm -hmm. and that's why Anthony keeps stacking Gway. Um, it's a good that's move. It. You know, another uh, really interesting chart this week was uh, the Coinbase chart. So Coin the asset, um, a big move. Uh, like over the past couple of weeks, a big move up for Coinbase. So it's almost uh, at its highs from April. Do you think Coinbase as an exchange, as an asset has been underrated, maybe was punched in the face too hard by all of this regulatory FUD and you know, pr prices uh, are being restored to balance or what's your take on Coin, the asset? Mm-hmm. I remember, uh, I think near the bottom, I gave a take on it uh, when I did a roll up with with David. Uh, I think it, yeah, it was probably towards the end of last year. And I, I said that I was not bearish on coin, but I felt like if you were betting on coin, you may as well just buy ETH or BTC, um, especially <laughs> ETH. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like coins performance has been, I think around the same as ETH. Um, maybe not, maybe if you factor in staked ETH, you maybe inch out a little bit more. Um, but I was talking more like long, long term. I wasn't talking, you know, six months or something. I was talking on, on a, on a, you know, the next few years or something like that. That was my general take on, on, you know, whether you were to buy coin or ETH or something, but generally, yeah, I, I felt like because Coinbase is so closely, closely tied to crypto uh, and and crypto kind of markets because most of their revenue comes from trading volumes, it would act the same way as as kind of the crypto markets. It would go down with all of crypto. It would go up with crypto. And I think that's that's played out here as well. Um, but also Coinbase was named as the the partner in a lot of these ETF filings, so that's been a positive uh, kind of thing for them. They obviously got sold down pretty brutally along with the rest of crypto there. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like they're probably poised to do very well. Uh, they're the biggest US-based exchange. Yes, they're being sued by the SEC, but honestly, I don't, they're either going to win that lawsuit or it's going to be some settlement that that is in Coinbase's favor or the SEC is going to withdraw it. I don't foresee a future where they lose that, but I also don't think the market cares because the market knows that that lawsuit's going to be going on for years. So even if Coinbase for some reason loses, that's still like, you know, many years down the line. So the I think the market looks at this and is like, okay, if the crypto markets are going to get hot again, Coinbase is the biggest company in the US, they have the blessing of all these big TradFi institutions, you know, Coin's probably a good bet here. Yeah, it's also um, increasingly hard to start a crypto exchange, right? Like you, mm -hmm. you got to look at who are the competitors to, to Coinbase and Kraken and these types of exchanges. And I mean, I uh, look at a lot of startups as do you haven't seen anybody <laughs> trying to start a new crypto exchange from from um, from scratch. The last person who tried to do that was SBF and look where that ended up. <laughs> um, th this is also a high contrast week from uh, the perspective of NFTs versus DeFi. So NFTs were a down bad 
We've got Beans down 69%, Azuki 58%, Moonbirds 24%, Port Apes uh, down uh, tw- uh, 23%. And relative to DeFi tokens, so Comp was up 80%, Pendle 66%, Maker 32%. Uh, DPI, which is a DeFi index, up 12.6%. Now, some of these are just probably picking assets to, to prove a point, and this is only the seven-day performance. That said, um, maybe this is a sign of some sort of decoupling. I mean, uh, NFTs have been on a tear, have probably overperformed DeFi in a lot of ways, at least during the, the last um, bull run. Uh, is this DeFi coming back? What, what's your take overall on DeFi tokens? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard because there's so many of them, right? And you can pick out any bunch of them um, and, you know, maybe they have good performance over seven days for just no reason at all. Maybe they just went up because speculators were speculating. So I, I agree with you, seven days is probably too short of a, of a period to draw any kind of conclusive narratives from. But if you look at the assets listed here, like Comp and, and MKR, right, maybe it's going up because people are betting on the fact that the TradFi people are coming and they know how to invest properly. They know how to look at price to sales ratios and they're going to buy the the bags that actually have kind of metrics behind them. And they're not just going to buy things for speculation's sake. And that's a fine thesis to have. But at the same time, I think that's more of a narrative than reality because I don't foresee these TradFi institutions buying random DeFi tokens or just DeFi tokens generally for for a little while still, uh, not in any kind of size either. And, and I, I don't expect like a comp or an MKR to get like an ETF <laughs> anytime soon, right? So I, I feel like people are just betting on and speculating on, on that side of things. Um, with NFTs, honestly, I'm not like an expert on NFTs, but from everything that I've seen over the, over the past few weeks, I think the common sentiment is that people finally woke up to the fact that a lot of these NFT projects have no intention of ever actually driving value to the NFTs themselves. They have no <laughs> intention of building a community or an ecosystem. They took the money and they're just keeping the project alive to make it look like it's not an, a rug, right? <laughs> That's my general opinion on a lot of these NFT projects, actually. <laughs> Anthony is cynical on NFTs. We got more uh, stuff around NFTs to talk about including uh, is this an nft winter is there a way out of this pain is there going to be utility in the nft market also going to talk about um the sec and these bitcoin etfs larry fink ceo of blackrock came out very strongly he's on a mainstream media tour talking good things about bitcoin uh and we'll get to the cameron winklevoss letter to barry silbert as well but before we do we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible including our number one recommended crypto exchange, Kraken. Go check them out. Kraken Pro has easily become the best crypto trading platform in the industry. The place I use to check the charts and the crypto prices, even when I'm not looking to place a trade. On Kraken Pro, you'll have access to advanced charting tools, real-time market data, and lightning-fast trade execution, all inside their spiffy new modular interface. Kraken's new customizable modular layout lets you tailor your trading experience to suit your needs. Pick and choose your favorite modules and place them anywhere you want in your screen. With Kraken Pro, you have that power. Whether you are a seasoned pro or just starting out, Join thousands of traders who trust Kraken Pro for their crypto trading needs. Visit pro.kraken.com to get started today. Mantle, formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses EigenLayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80%, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects 
subcommunities from all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has subcommunities from around Web3 onboarded, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming and Bybit for TVL and Liquidity and OnRamps. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xMantle. It looks like NFT winter has come. Maybe it's been a long time building, but uh, this week certainly confirmed it to me. This is a tweet from uh, a Wall Street Bets meme account. Uh, someone purchased this Bored Ape NFT in October 2021 for $3.4 million. Today, the highest bid is $57,000 from $3.4 million to $57,000. Um, apparently, this was purchased in a Sotheby's auction as well so this wasn't just kind of like a wash trade type purchase at least it doesn't appear to be uh, the meme account continues to go on the buyer could have purchased this 120 foot yacht instead uh, instead they have a picture of a monkey or instead of purchasing a monkey picture for 3.4 million the buyer could have owned this mega mansion compound just really rubbing it in and this is the nft price floor so um a lot of pain in the board ape community crypto punks are still kind of Faring okay, um, Azuki's down to kind of number eight. Um, we can look at some of these things in terms of ETH denomination, which is you know how I think both of us like to look at this. And so, like Board Ape has at its peak uh, floor price was 128 ETH for a uh, an ape, and now it's down to 30. So when you look at not just dollar denominated but ETH denominated drops. We, uh, we have kind of a disturbing picture here. So maybe just continuing your, your thought um, from, from the last. So you think this is basically the market waking up and realizing that all I have is a dumb monkey picture? Is that, is that kind of it? Or is that too cynical of a take? What, what do you think, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I was saying, that illusion that had been kind of prevalent with these projects that they were actually building out ecosystems, that they were going to drive value to these NFTs in some way, whether it be through creating like a video game or some kind of community thing or some kind of social thing. Um, I, I feel like with the Azuki Mint, that illusion was completely shattered because Azuki's is one of the you know biggest NFT projects. They've raised a lot of money and they came out with this new collection that literally, as you said, it was a derivative and it, it barely changed anything, right? And people couldn't even tell the difference between the NFTs. So I think that triggered a massive sell-off where people were like, uh, people finally waking up and panicking and being like, oh my God, if this is what they're going to do, then what are my Azuki's actually worth? Like if this is the best that they can come up with, even though they have all this money, um, you know, this is, this is really bad so and i think that sentiment just kind of played out very quickly across the whole kind of um, nft community and also uh it's a lot more efficient to trade nfts these days because of marketplaces like blur whereas in the past uh, we didn't have these marketplaces so the price discovery was actually less efficient but people were blaming blur saying oh it's blur's fault the nft prices <laughs> dropped it's like well on the flip side you could blame the fact that there wasn't an efficient market around before for these nft prices going up so much because it, it wasn't real it, it wasn't like 
uh, I wouldn't say real price discovery, but maybe it wasn't the most efficient price discovery. And now that you have more efficient price discovery, you can actually see the true value reflected of these things, right? Um, so yeah, that's my general take. I'm not an expert on NFTs. I don't know what these things are going to do, whether they're going to go up or down from here. I do subscribe to um, the fact that most of these projects, especially the PFP ones, are just going to act like every project in crypto uh, or most projects in crypto. They're just going to like go down only a lot of the time um, and they're not going to outperform either over the long run. So yeah, that, that's my general take. But as, as for specific NFT projects, I, I don't pay enough attention to know which ones are going to do well and which ones aren't. So I refrain from kind of making those kind of comments. Do you know, I, I, I want to ask you kind of a meta question here, Anthony, because I know you are a collector of uh, real life things, of real life, mm -hmm. uh, you know, action figures, all sorts of different collections. Even I'm, I'm looking kind of behind you and I see all sorts yeah. of different things <laughs> in your room that you've collected. So that has appealed to you. And you are also... A crypto native, um, but the NFT thing hasn't really stuck to you. Why is that? Why hasn't there been an NFT that appeals to Anthony Sassano yet? So generally, I like like physical collectibles a lot more than than digital stuff. Even though I, I spend so much time in, in the digital realm, I don't get the same connection to digital collectibles as I do physical collectibles. And it's not just because they're they're physical and it's kind of a different a different thing. It's more that like. I like putting things on display and having them around me and kind of having like in my, my office right now, uh, you know, I've got all these figurines around me, I have my collectibles around me. It's kind of like a vibe, right? I don't know how to describe it. It's like a vibe. It's like a comfy place for me to be. It's my safe space. And I like that sort of stuff. Whereas with digital collectibles, I never had that feeling because a lot of these things, there's no like in-game world you can go to to and like put on your crypto punk as your face and act yeah, as you your crypto punk Yeah, you can't create a game. vibe. It's more of a social status no. game, wouldn't you say? Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't care for those games at all because if <laughs> I did, I wouldn't be hiding all this figurine stuff in my room, right? I'd be right. I'd be opening up like a showroom for it or something, but I, I actually don't care about that stuff. So yeah, it's, it's partly because of that. The social status games don't really appeal to me, um, but also, yeah, the, the fact that a lot of these things are, are art as well, like the most valuable like pieces, not the PFPs, but the other things that are art, I'm just not someone who uh is kind of partial to traditional style art or kind of like contemporary art i'm more partial to art and as an as kind of like um things like you know a lot of my figurines are from anime a lot of my other collectibles are from things that maybe i grew up with and stuff like that like uh, like like video games so i'm more partial to that stuff but i understand why people like the nfts they make it their like the pfps they make it their their identity but that could also be very bad because you're speculating on these things and there's a market for them whereas my figurines there's no market for it it's like ebay but like <laughs> I don't check the prices every day, so I'm not crying over it if it goes down in value or I anything like that. I get it. I almost see um, you as more yeah. of a, a collectibles purist then. You're actually doing it because you enjoy the um, the vibe of it, the feel of it. Um, you're not mm. doing it to play kind of status games. I feel like that's much different than at least this version of NFTs and crypto where it, you it's just bored ape. You're joining a club. You're joining a group that can flex on others because they spent, mm -hmm. spent $3 million on a, a monkey JPEG and they could put it as their Twitter profile. It felt, it has always felt to me much more like a, you know, Rolex type of, you know, social status game only in the digital realm mm -hmm. than, than what you're doing here. Here are some takes from folks in the NFT community. Lopify, I've changed my position on most NFT projects. I'm infinitely bearish on 99% of ones that exist today unless things change. I'm not talking about random new ones. I'm talking about the top established ones. The speculation isn't even around a future project. A product. No one even knows what is being built for most. And if they do, the value accrual toward the NFT 
isn't clear. On the art collectible side, there are still some collections that I think remain pure, punks, autoglyphs, fidenzas, ringers. I'm not sure how long this extended bear lasts, but this week certainly marks the next stage. They go on. Are NFTs done? No, that's a silly statement. But if the bull market resumes, it doesn't mean any existing projects have to pump. That is another realization that I think has been reflected in the product, which is NFTs as a super class may be very successful. It doesn't have to mean the last generation of NFTs will be the ones that pump. I mean, some could remain, but this um, this Twitter account, Lopify, is saying 99% of the ones that exist today will probably go to zero. It sounds a lot like ICOs. It sounds a lot like uh, you know, 2017, 2018. Avichal. Uh, continues a thought that is related. NFTs are this cycle's altcoins. We are seeing liquidity flee and rotate out as the excess comes to an end. Just as with the ICOs, the ADIQ belief is actually right, just too early. Ethereum, Solana, Layer 2s, DeFi, and stablecoins all came out of the excess of the ICO boom. It just took a few more years. Some marquee NFT projects will survive this cycle. A few new projects will learn the lessons from the cycle's excesses and invest in real user value. Uh, they, uh, Avichel goes on, humans need to socially signal to each other, luxury goods, collectibles, video games, more applications will run on NFTs in a decade. The world's richest man sells physical NFTs after all. Uh, who are we talking about there? Are we talking about Elon? Who's the, the world's richest man sells physical yeah, NFTs? Yeah, I'm not sure. Anyway, this idea that NFTs are this cycle's altcoins, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I said it before where, where I said, like, it's the same as any projects within crypto. Like, most of them are, are going to fail or go to zero, right? Um, and I, I think that's true for the NFT market as well. But the NFT stuff is a little bit different or the NFT ecosystem is a little bit different because it has the art side of it. And I think when it comes to art, it doesn't actually have to do anything. Art doesn't have to have a roadmap. It doesn't have to have, like, a future value accrual plan or a team behind it. All that art does, good art does, is need to exist and evoke emotions for people or, um, you know, uh, be nice to look at for people or whatever people find valuable, or the social signaling, things like that, right? And that's actually why I think punks have held up, you know, relatively well to other NFTs is because there's no roadmap for punks, right? Punks don't exist to- There's uh, no to kind expectations, of like Exactly. It's literally, this is what you get, right? You get like a JPEG and it's a pixelated JPEG and it's a kind of pure NFT collection because it came out like, it wasn't the first, but it came out in like 2017 where NFTs weren't really a thing except like crypto crypto, crypto kitties, I guess. Um, and it is a social status symbol too, because they're still relatively expensive. Um, you can basically imprint yourself on it because a lot of these things look different and you can find one that looks so, sort of similar to you. You can use it as a profile picture, things like that. But yeah, and it's the OG, right? So it has OG status. But I think the number one reason it's still so valuable and, and relative to others and it's done so well is because of the fact that there's no expectations here. No one's expecting CryptoPunks to be more than just CryptoPunks. Well, let's move on from NFTs for now. So uh, Anthony, some other big news out of this week. Um, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is hitting the mainstream media circuit and he's pumping Bitcoin. Here, here he is in a clip on Fox Business. I'm going to play this. And also, I do believe the role of crypto is, um, it is, it, it, it's digitizing gold in many yeah. ways. It's a, it's a, instead of investing in gold as a hedge against inflation, a hedge against the, uh, the onerous problems of any one country or, or the, 
or the devaluation of your currency, whatever country you're in. Um, let's be clear. Bitcoin is an international asset. It's not based on any one currency. And so it, it, it can represent an asset that people can play as an alternative. I would call the, the foundation of BlackRock is about hope. You invest for retirement because you believe tomorrow is better than today. There you go. The foundation of BlackRock is about hope. I love that line. Um, Larry Fink. So remember, BlackRock, of course, is a an asset manager with over $8.5 trillion in assets. This is where I think the baby boomer generation really uh, has its money. And Larry Fink is one of the most influential people on Wall Street for that reason. And here he is doing a mainstream media circuit. He's talking about the, the virtues, the value of cryptocurrency being a non-state store of value, a non-sovereign money system. Very interesting as well when you contrast that to uh, what he was saying in 2017. This is Chris K pointing that out. In 2017, Larry Fink, the same guy we just heard from Anthony, called Bitcoin an index of money laundering. All right, that was, I guess, five, six short years ago. It went from an index of, of money laundering to this beautiful um, non-state store of value to protect us from government supply inflation. What do you think is going on here, Anthony? So he wasn't the only one uh, that said stuff like this. Um, like obviously Jamie Dimon's pretty pop, uh, pretty famous for saying kind of bad stuff about Bitcoin. Warren Buffett as well. Um, you know, Rat Poison Squared, all that. So there, there was definitely a lot of these traditional finance guys just being very skeptical of crypto, Bitcoin, whatever, whatever it was. But I think a lot of that skepticism came from one: they, these guys are like CEOs of massive companies. They don't have the time to pay attention to crypto, and all the exposure that they get to crypto is probably via their morning read of the mainstream media news. That's that's probably all of their exposure, right? But then what happens is I think over time, and it takes a while, if it survives, which crypto has, they pay more attention, right? They start getting uh, more and more involved with it. They pay more and more attention. They start hearing about it more and more. And they think, okay, well, maybe there is actually something here. And I think that these these guys are changing their tune because they do believe right at, at this point in time that there is something here. They believe that cryptocurrencies, you know, Bitcoin, Ether, stuff like that can be alternatives uh, to gold. And it's actually pretty wild to hear him say that, you know, crypto is digital gold um, because it's it's literally the, one of the main narratives that we've been saying for a long, long time. And now we have the world's largest, uh, sorry, um, the CEO of the world's largest money, uh, money, uh, money management uh, fund. Uh, saying this. So yeah, and, th and this is what I was talking about earlier about this kind of like wind change where we haven't seen anything remotely close to this before in terms of positivity. When you have people that have been super successful uh, in the traditional finance kind of market um, and super influential there saying positive things about something that five years ago or six years ago, they were, you know, they were saying that was just used for money laundering, was saying it's rat poison squared, things like that. That is a marked difference and a marked change of opinion. And I don't expect them to change their opinion back just because we'll, we'll go through another bull bear cycle. Things will blow up again. I don't think they're going to change their opinion. I think they're going to financialize this asset properly within the traditional system, benefit from it, of course, as, as they do, because they're for-profit companies. But uh, yeah, I, I think 
this is finally the time where the institutions are actually coming to crypto. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think this is a total sea change in, in terms of messaging. And this, to me, it's it, it proves that we have already bottomed on regulatory FUD. I don't see how the, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren's anti-crypto army and Gary Gensler and all of the anti-crypto folks in, in government can stand up against kind of the onslaught and lobbying of the Larry Finks of the world and the fidelities of the world. Like that's just not how the, the political apparatus is uh, up. I, th I think you gave a um, very kind of like positive take. It's just like, hey, these guys needed time to get educated, right? And they needed um, crypto to survive and prove it's Lindy and prove that it exists. There's another more cynical take, which also might be true, which is basically like, uh, yeah, Larry Fink and BlackRock, they filled their bags. And that's why they are now <laughs> pumping it. I mean, they have an ETF application basically in the works. So they have a reason to say nice things about crypto and Bitcoin and plant that narrative. Why? Because now they have a product for it. They were anti-crypto because they couldn't sell anything that was pro-crypto. And now that they can, uh, again, maybe more evidence that the ETF is, is coming relatively soon, if not this year. Uh, they'll have a product. So of course, they're going to start to say um, good things about it. Those incentives line up to me as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think so. But they could have done that in 2018, 2019 as well. Um, and honestly, I don't know. I, I don't feel like Larry Fink needs to fill his Bitcoin bags. I I'm pretty sure he's, so. <laughs> he's doing all right. I, I think Look he's doing all right on the money front. <laughs> I was laughing, by the way, when we were playing this clip from Fox Business. Look at the assets that um, are, are behind on screen. We got Bitcoin. We got uh, Ethereum. Oh, right, cool. We got Litecoin, baby. We got XRP. Ugh. These are the top four crypto assets, uh, according to Fox Business. <laughs> worth reporting <laughs> that triggers me hard i don't know oh man litecoin and xrp are just those assets that just won't die they've been <laughs> grandfathered in as the traditional finance approved assets i don't know why but yeah it, it, it's just weird and, and and xrp mind you ripple still has an active sec yeah enforcement action against them so <laughs> it's just crazy <laughs> yeah it's funny i mean this is again proof that we are early uh of course if mainstream media is, is still um you know talking about litecoin and xrp is the top four a few things on the etf that that will update you on this week so one bit of maybe bad news uh apparently earlier in the week the sec said that spot bitcoin etfs the ones that were filed recently by blackrock and and fidelity uh they were inadequate so the sec reviewed them um called them inadequate um and uh, that seemed like bad news. An ETF analyst uh, said, hold up a second though, is this really bad news? This isn't as bad as the headline. The key paragraph is deep in the story. Basically the SEC wants them to name the crypto exchange and give more details uh, in, their, in their application. That's understandable, arguably good news. So some people are saying, well, maybe it's good news that there's some back and forth. Uh, Dan McArdle seems to agree. Yeah, quickly engaging in back and forth with applicants versus staying silent, simply waiting out the shot clock for many months and then rejecting them seems like big change. So the SEC even saying that the, the filings are ETF, uh, filings are inadequate. At least that shows that they are talking uh, and that could be a good sign. So a little bit of, of back and forth on this and uh, the market's not sure and analysts aren't sure really how to interpret this. I guess my take is, um, I don't know. Um, I still think it gets approved uh, maybe this year. I, you know, I predicted that on the, on the last roll up because I think it feels so close and the SEC going back and forth with BlackRock. BlackRock also updated some of its filings. 
um, added some additional information, uh, you know, fidelity submitting. I think that like the Larry Finks of the world know what's going on and are in conversations with the SEC and know that there is a path towards uh, approval. And that's why this back and forth is is happening. So I still think it's bullish for the ETFs. We're gonna have a, a an episode with some ETF analysts tomorrow on Bankless to get the full story. But w- what about you, Anthony? Are you over under a, a Bitcoin ETF happening this year? Yeah, I mean, it's more likely than not. Um, I think I, I I thought that before this recent spat of news came out. But as Dan says here, the fact that the SEC is actually going back and forth here instead of just waiting it out to reject the um, the ETF is huge because why would they go back to these kind of applicants unless they wanted to troll everyone? But why would they go back to these, <laughs> these applicants and say, hey, you need to fix your application? Yeah. In my mind, there's only one reason to do that. It's because they want to approve the ETF. They just need to dot the I's and cross the T's. So unless they just trolling us all and they're going to rug us at the last minute um you know which could happen right <laughs> yeah, like it uh, it's not it's not impossible i i do feel like yeah it's 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 likely that these etfs are going to get approved yeah i mean it seems like the typical sec approach is just to plug their ears and ignore if they don't want to do something they just ignore rather than discourse right so discourse is maybe mm-hmm. a bullish sign uh speaking of the sec and gary gensler there was a rumor this week that gary gensler was resigning from the sec which is very interesting. This new website popped up that I had never seen before. It's called Crypto Alert. Uh, had an article posted. SEC sources confirm Gary Gensler reg- resignation. Uh, so of course, Crypto Twitter, you know, took this up. There's all sorts of tweets. Um, I was waiting for it to be verified. It was never verified, Anthony. So this is fake news. Uh, interestingly enough, this website, Crypto Alert. Um, it, you know, Cointelegraph scanned this this article itself. Ninety-seven um, percent on AI detector zero GPT <laughs> that the text was generated by an AI. All right, so this entire story was very likely generated by an AI. This entire website is new; it popped out of nowhere. Okay, and it has this story generated by uh, AI. Um, this is very interesting, like because I I, I think. Why, why is Bankless even talking about this? I, I think everyone listening, crypto investors need to know there will be all sorts of sources of fake news uh, that hit crypto. Um, we don't know the intent of this with someone you know producing this maliciously. Were they trying to troll crypto? Were they trying to cause some volatility, uh, open up some trading positions and manipulate the market that way? I have no idea. But with all of the AI tools these days, I mean, the cost of fake news is basically dropping to zero. So mm-hmm. you, as a consumer of crypto media and crypto news, have to be very careful with what you uh, what you believe. And you have to not trust, but verify all of the sources. I think that is the lesson here. What What are the takeaways from your perspective? Yeah, no, I think that's the right way to think about it. I mean, I saw this and immediately in my mind, I was like, no, that's not true. Like, especially because <laughs> I looked at the I looked at the website, the crypto alert, and I'm like, yeah. what is this website? <laughs> Never heard of this before. This makes no sense. And then I saw a few people post that. I'm like, guys, like I, I I can guarantee you this is fake news. Like, there is no way this is this is true. Um, and and the thing is, is that if there was an anonymous source, why would they go to crypto? alert why wouldn't they go to like the block the or block coindesk or, right yeah, coin, yeah. um so but i agree with you. you you have to be careful you really have to kind of 
I feel like the default of when you read anything online is to second guess it, like always second guess <laughs> yes. it. Like don't just believe anything you're told at face value. That that should actually be the default now, um, not just because of AI, but because of the incentives at play where obviously everyone wants to get clicks and attention to monetize and, and stuff like that and to, and to um to get engagement uh, from different people. Um, so you always have to second guess things. And that's been my approach for a while whenever I see stuff like this, even from reputable outlets. Like I even, well, like with the block or coin desk, I'll be like, hmm, that doesn't actually make sense. Like if I think it doesn't make sense just because it's come from them doesn't mean I believe it. I look at it, I'm okay, that doesn't really make, make much sense. Let's see what the details are. Let's cross-reference this. Let's see what everyone else is saying. And even if, and if you do cross-reference it, even if the reputable publications all post the same thing, it could still be fake news because they could still yes. be tricked into publishing it. I know. So you have to be really, really careful. Um, but obviously, this was just prime crypto Twitter bait right here. Everyone on crypto Twitter thinks well, everyone wanted it to like, be true, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like enemy number one. But at the same time, I actually think even if it was true, this isn't a like a, necessarily a positive outcome because he could get replaced with someone that's worse, worse. for crypto, right? <laughs> <laughs> or he could get, or his replacement could just be like neutral and not care about crypto at all. And that means we wouldn't even get like legislation, oh, sorry, um, regulatory frameworks put in place for crypto, which is even worse because that's what yeah. we want. We don't, you know, so it's just, it, it, it's really just an article that that um, played to people's biases and everyone wanting him to resign. But I, I don't know. I, I feel like if you think that's going to change anything, don't uh, don't hope for something that might not come. <laughs> yeah, you think Anthony that the government is basically a hydra too. You cut off one head and like three others grow to replace it, basically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know that that said, there might be a compelling uh, case for Gary Gensler to actually recuse himself though from issues related to uh, crypto. At least Jake Travinsky makes that case. Um, he and the Blockchain Association wrote an entire uh, letter, kind of an open letter making the argument that Gary Gensler has perjured himself uh, by saying digital assets are securities and that basically SEC commissioners like Gary Gensler are meant to be neutral arbiters, uh, impartially weighing the evidence and arguments presented by the SEC staff and the enforcement targets of the prosecution, the defense. But when it comes to digital assets, Jake Travinsky claims, Chair Gensler is far from neutral. Since his appointment, he's re recently reportedly stated that um, his view that all assets other than Bitcoin are securities, end of story. I think there's something to that. Like for whatever reason, politics control otherwise, we don't really know. It seems like Gary Gensler has it in for crypto. And so um, how can you play your role as a regulator and be a neutral arbiter of the space if you just hate the asset class so much? At least that's the argument. Uh, Jake Travinsky made. So maybe he's, he's not resigning, but maybe he should, or at least recuse himself from some of these crypto things. We, we also had an episode earlier this week uh, with a representative Warren Davidson, who's uh, created this hashtag fire Gary Gensler. He's actually proposed a bill and some legislation to curtail the power that the chair of the SEC actually has and um, distribute that power more to a, the entire uh, commission. Uh, the the all of the SEC commissioners rather than just Gary Gensler, who kind of has a power structure such that he reigns as as tyrant king. I would at least like to see that in the U.S. Um, but as you say, uh, Anthony, these things are probably like modest changes. Um, at the end of the day, um, you know, Gary Gensler has kind of been painted as as our our core enemy, but I don't think he ultimately has fangs. Uh, in this industry. I think the, the forces at play 
uh, around crypto um, aren't going to like mean that he will not be a long-term impediment to us. So what's your take on all of this? Yeah, yeah, I, I generally agree with that. And I, I agree with what Jake said as well, that like he obviously, like as, as I said earlier, I don't think he necessarily hates crypto, but he's obviously got his own kind of incentives at play here for him to go after crypto. And he's not being impartial at all, right? Um, and, you know, we've seen plenty of clips of him saying things that contradict other things that have been said in the past and 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 basically make it look like he just has it out for crypto and wants to go after crypto for, for whatever reason. So, uh, yeah, he's definitely not someone who is fit to run the SEC, definitely not someone who's fit to run these cases against these different companies. I, I just don't understand why they brought this case against Coinbase, given that Coinbase has tried to play ball with them for so long now. And the only kind of rationalization I came to was that it was like a massive headline case for Gary Gensler and gets his name in the news yeah. um, and, you know, improves his own his own standing. But other than that, I, I don't know. I, I feel like if you have a company willing to work with you, why wouldn't you work with them instead of going through the, <laughs> right. I guess, much longer and more arduous process of <laughs> suing them, right? Um, so it, it didn't make much sense to, to me that, that that kind of happened there. Um, so, so yeah, I, I agree with Drake's thread here, but I don't think Gary Gensler is going to recuse himself. There is no, I guess, requirement for him to do that. Um, and there's no one that's going to make he? him do that. If his incentives are to get in the news and to build a career on this, why would he recuse himself? Exactly. And while Democrats are in power, I doubt they're going to like can one of their own. Right. <laughs> right. So like there, there's a, there's a, um, there's a, a representative in California who's basically, I don't think she's brain dead, but like she's got, she, she, she's kind of suffering from all these mental conditions because she's so old and mm. the Democrats aren't even replacing her. So you, you <laughs> yes. think they're going to replace Gensler? No, I don't think so. I, I think they're going <laughs> to let him do what he wants, uh, unfortunately, but it's just the way it is, I think. Guys, we got more coming up on the show. So Base is preparing its mainnet launch. Of course, that is Coinbase's layer two. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And also, Cameron Winklevoss sent a, a last and final nasty gram to Barry Silbert asking for his money back. We'll talk about that and some more. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible, including our friends over at MetaMask, who want you to check out their portfolio application inside of the MetaMask wallet. There's a link in the show notes. MetaMask has something new. Introducing MetaMask Portfolio. MetaMask Portfolio is the best way to view your crypto portfolio from a holistic level. See everything across all the chains all at once. In your portfolio, MetaMask will report the aggregate value of all the assets in your MetaMask wallets and even the other wallets you import too. But MetaMask Portfolio isn't just a passive portfolio viewer. It is a place to do all of the money verbs that make DeFi so powerful. You can buy, swap, bridge, and stake your crypto assets. So not only is MetaMask the easiest place to see your wallets in aggregate, but it's also a powerful battle station for all of your DeFi moves. So go check out your MetaMask portfolio because it's waiting for you to open it up. Check it out at portfolio.metamask.io. Are you planning to launch a token? Is your token already live? And are you granting your employees and contractors vesting token awards? And are you trying to figure out how to take care of taxable events for your team? Toku makes implementing a global token incentive award simple. With Toku, you will get unmatched legal and tax support 
to grant and administer your global team's tokens. Token will help you navigate across the lifecycle of your token, from easy to use pre-launch token grant award templates to managing post-cliff taxable events with payroll. For legal, finance, and HR teams, it's a huge complex task to have to comply with labor laws, payroll, and tax obligations, tax reporting, and crypto regulations in every country that you employ someone. It's difficult, time-consuming, manual, and costly, and it's drawing more attention from global regulators and governments. Toku makes it simple for leading companies in the space, Protocol Labs, Hedera, Gitcoin, and many more to manage their token complexities. So if you are interested in signing up with Toku, check out toku.com slash bankless or click the link in the description below. What an absolute mess this has been. This whole Gemini versus Barry Silbert thing. Uh, Cameron Winklevoss just sent a final offer to Barry Silbert. At least that's what he calls it. This is an open letter posted to Barry Silbert. I love how this all plays out over Twitter and social media, Anthony, by the way, so we get to kind of see what's going on uh, behind the scenes. He, he says this, Barry, today marks 229 days since Genesis halted withdrawals and 174 days since I last wrote an open letter to you. As a reminder, I wrote you on behalf of the 232,000 Gemini Earn users who have over $1.2 billion of assets trapped in Genesis, a company owned and controlled by Digital Currency Group, a company owed and controlled by you. Basically, he goes on to say, you better get my money, uh, Barry. And uh, if you don't, I'm going to drop a lawsuit on you. And you have like two or three days. That was the content of the letter. He goes on to explain, um, you know, I think this is more written for the public than for for uh, Barry Silbert. He goes on to explain all of Barry's misdeeds. Um, so there's a bit, bit of PR behind this. But the reality is DCG owes Gemini and Gemini earn customers a heck of a lot of money. It's, it's just a shame, Anthony, that 232,000 uh, crypto users people who thought that they were maybe using some sort of a safe product are now out of their money. 1.2 billion assets trapped. And this definitely hit retail uh, fairly hard. What's your take on this whole fiasco, right? I, I don't know that um, that Barry, that DCG will you'll pay the money back, but like, what's, what's your overall take here? Yeah, so it's funny because Barry has been around for quite a while in crypto. Um, he's had his company, Digital Currency Group, for quite a while. They have a very large portfolio of companies under them, um, ones that they've invested in, that they own and control. Things like Coindesk is part of Digital Currency Group. So they're not a small player. But I don't think a lot of people are aware that Barry's like the original crypto villain um, because <laughs> he did a lot of villainous stuff. He's actually responsible for Ethereum Classic. Um, you know, he was the one who got it listed um, and, and started pumping it really early on and made it a thing, or at least one of the, the chief parties that did that. So he's definitely one of the OG villains of the industry. But because he made so much money and he had these kind of like tendrils in everything in crypto, people wouldn't really call him out. And they didn't really think that he'd be someone who would get into this position where he basically owes another company billions of dollars, right? Um, so I think that it came as a little bit of a surprise for people. But at the same time, the fact that he hasn't even uh, bothered to engage with uh, Gemini or, or the Winklevoss twins here and try to work out like a peaceful resolution is or has to be incredibly frustrating for the, the Winklevoss twins. Like I'd be incredibly frustrated as well. I mean, it's the same thing with what we saw with 3Rs Capital, how they're not working with their liquidators through the bankruptcy process. Imagine how the people that owe money to feel, right? So it's just like a really 
poor kind of showing, even if you can't pay the money back, at least work with them to try and work out a deal, right? Um, but yeah, so this, I guess, like, as you said, is the final letter that they're going to send. And as you said, it is more of a PR thing, I think, to kind of maybe drum up support for the Winklevoss twins and make sure that there's not really much support for Barry Silbert. Uh, and then they're going to, you know, do this lawsuit, which everything's going to come out in that, right? Well, I think, I think there's an element of retail kind of wants blood too. They're like, uh, Barry Silbert, you have the money. I mean, liquidate yeah. your a other assets. You're like, you know, a billionaire, you can pay this if you really want to. And then other mm -hmm. people are saying to uh, Cameron and Tyler, hey, aren't you guys billionaires too? Are you guys incredibly <laughs> wealthy? Like, can't you, like, so, uh, and then of course no one wants to pay because this is a very large uh, sum of money. Um, a massive mm -hmm. amount of money. One other contrast point here, though, for me, Anthony, was like from 2020 to 2022, if you wanted to lend out your crypto, there are basically two ways to do that. One is you could use a, a centralized a third party, an exchange, um, a CFI bank, let's call them. So you could go to Celsius, you could go to BlockFi, you could go to Gemini, you could, you could lend that way. And the other way was through DeFi. There's Aave and, and Maker and Compound, these other things. Um, of course, we, we all know what happened. The centralized lending providers went bad, a lot of them, almost all of them, uh, basically. Uh, and uh, one line was interesting from this letter. In addition to, um, Cameron says this, in addition to dragging out a resolution, they have ballooned professional fees to over $100 million, all of which have gone to lawyers and advisors at the expense of creditors and earn users. Just the waste. Here we are almost a year later, from the blow up so the kind of the start of the blow ups 100 million dollars at least has been spent on lawyers and professional fees and we're no closer to settlement right contrast that to DeFi. everything was on chain right mm -hmm. the liquidations happened in a fair orderly efficient way you know the thing that sec says is their mission fair orderly like efficient <laughs> capital markets it happened basically instantly Everyone got their money back. It was fully transparent. It was fully regulated. There weren't $100 million in lawyer and professional fees that had to go into arbitrating this and trying to settle it. Like, just contrast those two systems. And uh, man, what a win for DeFi when you zoom out and, and look at that, that context. It is so much better, particularly for these things called um, collateralized loans than the centralized providers. That, to me, is when you look deeply, the actual bullish thing is the kind of the contrast point here. What do you think? Definitely. I mean, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, where was the SEC on this sort of stuff, right? <laughs> like uh, these aren't new companies that just came onto the scene suddenly. And, you know, I guess like uh, we're under the radar, they're big billion dollar companies. And it seems like none of the regulations that existed, had, uh, you know, had any effect here. Uh, unfortunately. Um, and the same is true for all the other blobs we saw, like FTX and, and things like that, right? I know FTX technically was was domiciled in the Bahamas, but there's FTX US, which, and then there was the whole SBF, co you know, cozying up to politicians and the SEC and stuff like that. So, you know, at the end of the day, like you can either have, uh, you know, uh, I guess like 
control not control but like uh an orderly unwinding via the DeFi system or you can have an unorderly unwinding via the traditional system because the traditional system as was noted here costs a lot of money right it costs 100 <laughs> it million dollars in lawyers and advisors to actually arbitrate this whereas within DeFi, it's all run by code right yes the code can have bugs and there are exploits and stuff like that that happens but i mean more money has been lost on these CeFi platforms than all of DeFi combined the last time i did the math on it so i think DeFi is winning here <laughs> yeah, yeah i definitely agree with that um let's talk about base so base is nearing its mainlet launch this is coinbase coinbase is a layer two of course uh they just announced the completion of their audits and so they fulfilled four out of five of their criteria for mainnet launch of course base is built on the op stack uh we've talked a lot about base what, what do you think about base in general uh anthony are, are are you bullish what do you think kind of this this progress to mainnet means it, it certainly sounds like base will be released this year um what will be the effect yeah i mean i agree i think it definitely will get released this year in case something happens to delay it um we still you know have like six months left of the year so it's plenty of time and jesse polak the lead of base at coinbase has teased um this year as well on 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 twitter so yeah it seems pretty strong signal that it'll be released this year but i've said this a lot of times i'm incredibly bullish on this i think base is going to be to coinbase what bsc or binance smart chain was to binance really that big huh? yeah yeah, I, I definitely think so. And it's launching at the right time too. Like if you're a believer that the market is going to heat up again towards the end of this year into next year, uh, then you should believe that um, there's going to be a lot of new people coming into Coinbase who are then going to get onboarded to base. Because as well, and this is not something that I think a lot of people think about, if Coinbase is under scrutiny by the SEC for assets that they list, are they going to list any more assets? Like are they going to list any of the new assets? Probably not. But what they're going to do is they're going to have an asset page on their website. They're going to say, hey, <laughs> you can go trade this on base, right? Yeah. Our layer two. And here's how you do it. So they're going to bring a lot of new people on chain, in my mind. Um, and and I, I think that that will translate to new people on not just base, but other L2s and Ethereum generally. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to have a potential layer two summer, not maybe not in summer, but like what we're having with DeFi summer where these layer twos get so much usage from all this new money and all these new users pouring in because of, of base. I really do think base has a potential to kickstart that because of those users that Coinbase has. And um, BSC or Binance Smart Chain definitely kickstarted a lot of this EVM stuff, this alt EVM stuff that we saw, this alt layer one stuff that we saw play out. Um, so I, I do think that base can kickstart or at least continue the growth of the L2s and, and make it into something similar to DeFi Summer where we just had so much money coming in and it was so much activity happening. And it really kind of, uh, I guess, kickstarted that that massive growth trajectory so for, for, for things like DeFi. Anthony, if I'm bullish on base, what asset do I buy? Because base yeah. has already said they're, they're not rolling out a token, okay? And I already have my bags packed with ETH, right? I'm going to continue to dollar cost average that. Is that maybe a case for coin? Or like the, you know, the, the stock that we were talking about in the outset of the episode? Or are there some other assets that might accrue value as a result of the potential success of this? Yeah, I mean, I think crypto natives generally are going to buy crypto assets instead of coin, even though coin probably seems like the obvious bet as well. But if if we're talking like people in crypto and crypto natives, I think when you look at 
base and what it is as an L2. And then everyone's going to shill that it's built on like OP stack. And then people are going to be like, oh, well, Optimism has a token, right? It's OP. And then they're going <laughs> to go- I don't overthink it. It's just my OP, huh? <laughs> I, I think that's what's going to happen. But but the thing is, is that if, if we do have like an L2 summer or a layer two summer, what's going to happen is that people will just buy anything related to L2s, right? So I feel like if you are of the belief that that's going to happen, then buying any of the L2 tokens, or at least the popular ones, could possibly be the, the winning move, as well as ETH, of course, because ETH will obviously benefit from this. But yeah, I don't think it's just going to be one asset. Um, but- if any of the most, uh, the, sorry, if, if the most, if you go for the most obvious one, it would be OP because everyone will be saying, oh, it's built on OP stack, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, what's also very interesting to me about this model, it, this is also true of the Coinbase wallet, is if Base is successful, if Coinbase wallet is successful, it kind of cannibalizes uh, Coinbase's underlying centralized business, right? It's like they can't take the transaction fee, that the trading fee that they take on the centralized um, exchange if it's a decentralized exchange built on base with Uniswap. So I, I think I always I always admire companies that take those steps because I think they're like very it's very bold to say, uh, you know, Steve Jobs style. We're going to take the iPod, we're going to completely cannibalize it inside. It's just going to be an app on the iPhone, right? That's the future, and we're, we're willing to cannibalize our our business model. I think that's a, a bold step, and I'm glad they're taking it. Um, a few metrics from OP while we were talking about it. This is optimism. There was a bedrock migration. This was a new optimism migration that happened uh, a few weeks ago. Um, some pretty substantial metrics that are worth celebrating here. So after that upgrade, OP mainnet users are paying 54% less layer one gas uh, per transaction. So a 54% optimization, average transaction fee of about 14 cents. So far, this has saved community members 1.36 million in fees. Um, there's some other stats here that I think are, are pretty impressive. But in general, how are layer twos able to achieve these optimizations without any kind of um, Ethereum layer one upgrade, Anthony? Yeah, so the, the biggest thing that they can do is what's called call data compression. So call data is basically the the data that they put onto Ethereum L1. Um, and that's the most expensive part of an L2 because they, they post two things. They post the call data and they post a, a proof. The proof is very cheap to post. The call data, very expensive. And in terms of numbers, I think the proof is like maybe 5%, 10% of the cost. So call data is, is, is 90, 95%. So what they've done here, or at least one of the optimizations that they've made with Bedrock is that they've compressed that call data down so just it's like, like you it's would like compress like compressing a file on your computer like yeah. zipping it or yeah something pretty, like pretty this, much right? yeah 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 you can think of it that that, that way and, and and use that analogy it, it definitely fits um so that's that's one thing that they did there's other optimizations they can always make to to how the actual code of the optimism network um you know runs how efficient it is things like that and there are there are some other tricks that they that they can use as well to get these costs down but honestly i didn't think that they would get the cost down this much like that's a huge huge reduction and as you said there was no l1 change here there's no increased gas limit on l1 you know bigger blocks or anything there's no upgrade specific to l2s that have gone live yet obviously those are coming later like eip 4844 or proto dank sharding which will actually reduce fees a lot more than this so um, just to quickly explain for people, it replaces um, for L2's uh, call data with something called blob style transactions. And these are much cheaper. So it's the same data that can be posted, but it gets posted as a blob instead of call data. And that reduces fees from 10 to 100x. It depends on the Did L2 you guys and hear how that? they're constructed. 10 to 100x. By the way, is 4844, yeah. do you think that's roughly still slated for this year? 
Yeah, I mean, I on my estimates put it November. Um, I, I wow. am pretty confident in a November date. Um, it could come earlier, but yeah, the um the upgrade that it's a part of, Denkun, um, I I feel like that's gonna go live in yeah, that November is ish. So it, big. That is so big for roll-ups. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It will it will require the roll-ups to take advantage of that. I think they have to change how they how they do things. But um, yeah, I mean, I would expect these and, and also another big part of it isn't just a reduction in fees, it creates a separate fee market for these l2s so if gas spikes for on layer one ethereum say it goes from 10 guay to 100 guay the price of blob transactions of the of the where they're storing their data the price of that stays the same it doesn't spike with the rest of the network so it's mm. actually a segmented fee market from the rest of the network which means that even if the rest of the network goes crazy because some nft mint is happening these l2 should still have those low costs which are, in my opinion is the the bigger upgrade. You know what? You just taught me something. I didn't actually know that. So it really yep. bifurcates the actual um you know, kind of block space market then. Yep. Yep. It's 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 a kind of thing that is, I think, live. I think Solana has this actually, and it was something that was spoken about um as part of uh, EIP um 1559 a while ago, this multi-dimensional fee market where essentially you have different segments, but because of has a roll-up centric roadmap where we're pushing all the execution or user-facing stuff to roll-ups. We figured, well, let's not do it for every transaction on Ethereum because that would be too complex. Let's do it for just the ones that the roll-ups take advantage of, and and that's what we're doing with with this forty-eight forty-four. So interesting. Like uh, Ethereum is giving a massive subsidy basically to layer twos. Like it is mm -hmm. a massive upgrade for Th them. There is a there is a trade-off though in that the call data or the blobs expire after a month, and what right. that means is that you can't, so if if after a month you haven't downloaded that data, you wouldn't be able to access that again unless someone else had downloaded it. But it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't exist on, on layer one. It, it exists as, as, as part of the state. It's just that you can't access the specific data that was part of, of that, right? But you only um, need that, to but, access it if something goes really wrong, right? I mean, it's not- a... Well, not even that. You only need to access it if you need access to the historical balances of accounts. So let's say yeah. <laughs> you want to know what the balance of- So you only need it for like tax-related purposes and stuff like that, sure. right? And there's going to be third-party services that keep this data and it'll be it'll be fine. Um, but yeah, that 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 is the trade-off because as you said, it is a big subsidy that Ethereum is giving these roll-ups and it can't be stored forever because it would balloon the the um the size of the chain. But uh but yeah, it, it's still I think amazing because it's a really smart approach. Yeah. And I think we're seeing it in the yeah. innovation, right? It's not so it's not just these optimizations from Arbitrum and uh, Optimism and other groups on compression as well. Um so late last week, Polygon Labs just uh proposed their Polygon 2.0 architecture. Um, we're going to have Polygon actually on the show next week to to go into this in, in some detail. But what's the TLDR at the highest level uh, on Polygon 2.0, Anthony? What are they doing here? Yeah, so it, it's kind of funny because it's not just Polygon that's that's doing this, but um, like you have OP stack, you have uh, the ZK, ZK stack from ZK Sync, and now you have Polygon 2.0. What they're all doing is they're building this L2 infrastructure that um, can all be interoperable with each other, all settling on Ethereum, right? But basically where anyone can spin up their own Polygon L2 chain or their own ZK Sync L2 chain or their own OP chain, Have right? Have we standardized all... the term for this? Are we calling them super chains or what are we calling them? 
uh, well, Optimism calls it a super chain. Um, I think Polygon has their own name for it. Uh, and I think uh, ZK um, uh, Sync has their own name for it as well. May the best meme win. I kind of like super chain. Yeah, I, we'll see though. Super chain's pretty, a pretty good name, I think. Um, but it's all about unifying, as as Polygon says here, unifying the liquidity, unifying the, the kind of like uh, scalability, making sure that all of these things can interoperate with each other without having to go through, you know, third party bridges and stuff like that. So they can natively interoperate and giving developers uh, the optionality of what to build, right? Whether they want to build an app chain or maybe they want to build a generalized chain. Um, so that's what it seems like all of these L2s are coalescing around, um, which I think is, is, is pretty, is pretty cool. Um, but I don't know how many of these we can have because it gets to a point where you have too many and then it just doesn't make much sense. So I, I feel like you might have a handful of them that succeed and maybe some others don't, don't really succeed because they just came too late to market or didn't do the BD right or stuff like that. But if anyone can pull it off, Polygon definitely up there in terms of uh, being able to pull it off, in my opinion. Yeah, certainly. I should mention uh, both Anthony and myself are uh, advisors to Polygon as well. We've been very, very bullish on this project since the very beginning, as well as uh, many other Layer 2s out there. Uh, speaking of Layer 2s, Anatoly from uh, Solana asks himself the question, would it be possible for Solana to eventually be an ETH Layer 2? Do, do I recall, Anthony, you asking him that question, you bring that up to him in person? There was some sort of interaction like that where he was very much against it, called you sort of, I don't know, maybe said some things. I'm not sure what happened, but it, it, to me, it was, it was interesting that Anatoly actually brought that up as a hypothetical. And his conclusion is uh, no. It's not. It's not. Yeah. Possible. <laughs> <laughs> of course, as as one would expect. What's your take on this? Yeah, I, I don't think it was me that said that to him publicly, but I have actually said this a lot of times over the years that like Solana, in my opinion, would work better as a layer two. But look, it depends on what you want Solana to be. Now, obviously, Anatoly and like the core Solana uh, community, what they want Solana to be is this chain that essentially allows you to send transactions across the globe at the speed of light. That is like one of their main selling points that they're going on about, right? Um, and they want to do this in a distributed way, you know, distributed across the globe with validators in, in you know, place in different places around the world. But to achieve that, you need to bump up the hardware requirements to levels that just are not sustainable, right? In my opinion. And then just not at a point where it would lend itself to everyday users being able to run nodes, run infrastructure, structure, be part of the consensus, stuff like that. So th that's the kind of trade-off there is there, but that's what they want Solana to be. But if you just want to harness Solana's execution technology, so it's like parallelization technology and, and, and kind of, um, the underlying architecture, you could build that as an L2. You just wouldn't get the same Solana you would get as an L1 because Solana as an L1 is going towards that, you know, speed of light transaction, uh, kind of finality, stuff like that. Uh, and that's what, Anatoly says in this in this kind of tweet here, um, but as an L2, you can still harness uh, you know Solana's um, benefits in its execution layer side of things. But I don't think the Solana chain as it exists today is, is going to be an ETH L2. I don't think that they should be an ETH L2 because that would be really bad for them. I believe I don't I don't think it would be good for them to do that because it would mean that they basically aren't competing with Ethereum anymore. And I think that's one of their selling points that they're competing with Ethereum, that they're better architecture. They're competing for, for different apps. And there are certain apps that they're trying to build um, that aren't necessarily possible on Ethereum, at least layer one. Uh, and they want to do it at layer one. So there's um there's these apps where basically it's decentralized infrastructure, things like Helium, which is that, that hotspot where you can buy this piece of hardware, you put it in your home, you, you know, you generate, 
uh, kind of, uh, uh, um, I guess like they have their own coin that you can kind of farm or mine or whatever it is. They want to do that sort of stuff. And there's a few other things that they're focused on. I don't think they could do that as a layer two. So all the power to them on on that front. But in terms of harnessing Solana's technology, um, you know, it's parallelization, it's transaction um, te te uh, technology that the EVM doesn't have. Uh, it could be built as an L2. And I think there's actually a team building that as an L2 on, on Ethereum. That's interesting. I love in crypto that we get to let all of the experiments uh, play out and run. Uh, and ultimately, we get to make bets on all of these experiments, too. So if you're bullish mm -hmm. Solana, you can make that bet. If you're not bullish Solana, you're more bullish on Ethereum's modular approach with layer twos, you can make that bet, too. So um, may the best chain win. Um, this is a, a Vitalik a Twitter thread. One thing I, I think uh, was notable, he, he just said, I'm taking an AMA on uh, Twitter. Um, someone asked him how he's feeling about the U.S. policy's approach to crypto, and he said this, The one comment I'll make is that I feel bad that Solana and other projects are getting hit in this way. They don't deserve it, and if Ethereum ends up winning, through all though all other blockchains getting kicked off exchanges, that's not an honorable way to win, and in the long term probably isn't even a victory. This is especially true since the real competition is not other chains. It's the rapidly expanding centralized world that is imposing itself on us as we speak. I wish all honorable projects a fair outcome in this whole situation. Of course, Vitalik, uh, as usual, kind of rising above the, the tribal fray and wishing well on all honorable projects, um, painting kind of the true enemy as the, the centralizers. What's your take on, on uh, Vitalik's take here? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with him. I've always not been a fan of the way, uh, you know, certain groups in crypto, uh, like Bitcoin maximalists, use the state as a weapon, uh, which is just completely ironic and and just hilarious to me that they would do that uh, to take down, you know, the competitors in the ecosystem. So, yeah, I, I don't want the state, any state, basically choosing um, winners and losers based on some arbitrary rules that they've come up with. I want these things to win or lose based on the free market, right? And And I think that, up until this point, crypto has been a relatively free market, and that actually has been a pretty decent arbiter of what is valuable and what isn't. Um, over the longer term, short over term, the longer term, that's key. Yes, right? <laughs> yes, short short term, not so good, <laughs> not so good. Long term, pretty good on on net. I know there are some things that the the market's not going to ever be able to optimize for and not going to be able to sort out, but on net, it's it's been pretty good. Um, you know, over, over the long, long term. Uh, but I still wouldn't want a state to come in and say, okay, you're not a security, you're a security, you know, you're not allowed to operate in, in the US, you you know, you are allowed to operate in the US, um, we're going to ban, you know, mining, or we're going to keep staking. I don't want Ethereum to win like that. I want Ethereum to win on its merits. And and that's why I completely agree with Vitalik uh, on, that, on that front. Well, uh, speaking of kind of winning and nation state level actors, it is notable, I think, that a presidential candidate is now making crypto part of his platform. This is uh, RFK, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I believe he is running uh, as a Democrat in the 2024 election. Here's what he says about crypto. This is from uh, the Bitcoin Miami conference. Let's just hear a clip. Proud to make an historic announcement. Our campaign will be the first presidential campaign in history to accept Bitcoin donations through Through the Lightning Network, as president, I will make sure that your right to hold and use Bitcoin is inviolable. Interesting. As president, I will make sure that your right to hold and use Bitcoin is inviolable. 
interesting words, I think, from uh, somebody um, on the presidential ticket. Now, uh, Bankless, of course, is not a political podcast. We'll make no comments on the, <laughs> the merit of this particular politician. But just seeing crypto rise to the level of being a presidential issue. Now, I haven't heard Trump weigh in on this. I haven't heard Biden weigh in on this. But here is a, a presidential candidate who's, um, you know, the cr critics would say pandering to the crypto audience. Um, I think supporters would say trying to protect, trying to enshrine uh, Americans' rights to hold their own private keys. What's your overall take on on this? Is this uh, surprising to you or is this playing out as Anthony Sassano would have suspected all along? Well, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's surprising just because crypto has been, you know, for the last few months at least, talked about more and more in the political sphere, obviously with the regulatory stuff, but also as part of Democrats and Republicans going at each other, right, in, in the US over, over this issue. So it's not surprising to see that a presidential, a presidential candidate uh, like RFK, I mean, I don't know him very well. I don't follow US politics that closely, but from what I see from him, he's definitely the underdog candidate. So obviously he would try and appeal to the communities that um, other candidates aren't appealing to. Um, and it, it, I think it fits his platform from what I've seen. But yeah, I, I'm not surprised that this has become uh, a thing now, given that it's already a thing in, you know, in the existing politics uh, and has been, at least for the, for this year, I think has been a, a big part of it. Um, and I think since the FTX blow up, definitely it's just become more of a, more of a talking point. Um, so, so yeah. And, and even though like, I don't make any really comments on, on the candidates themselves and, and whatever, and their policies, just the fact that crypto is is there right and he's being discussed in these circles and he's kind of front and center for a lot of these people is in of itself i think pretty bullish uh for, for crypto overall yeah i think the contrast point is something that uh belarus is doing uh, belarus wants to ban <laughs> peer-to-peer crypto transactions wow actually ban peer-to-peer -peer crypto transactions so if I send you my ETH and uh, I was in Belarus, that would be potentially illegal. Um, this is a bill that looks like it will uh, go into law. I think this is kind of worth a, a broader conversation, though, of something to be wary about. Um, of course, this week in the US, it was kind of Independence Day, which is sort of a, a celebration of the Declaration of, of Independence and uh, is enshrined, you know, at least to, to Americans, as kind of a document um, that, uh, that purports freedom, freedom from tyranny. I do think, Anthony, that um, you have to, like, we should be in the West very careful about what our countries are doing with respect to, like, peer to peer transactions and bankless wallets, like non custodial crypto wallets. Because if we get to a place where they start to talk about banning these things or making them illegal or, or limiting them in ways that um, are very gatekeeping, I think that is a terrible sign. And in fact, it might be a sign. And the crypto is an acid test for like how authoritarian your government is. And I think it's like confirmation that your society is veering towards an authoritarian surveillance state. So it's something that's always in the top of mind for me. And of course, you know, I think it's worth fighting for in your respective jurisdiction, wherever you're listening in, is to um, fight for these rights to hold your own private keys in your country. Um, but I'm worried that they won't be upheld what's what's kind of the state in uh, australia like there hasn't been anything close to this in the us of like a ban on peer-to-peer -peer transactions or a ban on crypto wallets um but there can be a slippery slope of if you start to get your travel rules and these kinds of things that that limit exchange withdrawals uh, over a certain size you can start to see us like veering towards that uh what's your overtake on this and what's the climate like in australia 
Yeah. So, I mean, I guess first I'll give my overall take is that I think it's funny that for the last maybe 10, 15 years, uh, at least Western governments, are, I mean, not just Western governments, even even China, been trying to get rid of cash, right? Cash is not very easily traceable. Uh, yes. Cash is, uh, you know, not very easily taxable, stuff like that. Uh, and then along comes crypto. And it's like, here we go. Here's digital cash. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just kind of a funny contrast. But I agree with you that, you know, if your country's trying to ban peer-to-peer -peer any transactions, uh, I think that's a big red flag and, and definitely, uh, you know, an, a, a, a potential harbinger of other things to come. Um, but in terms of what the climate's like in Australia, it... <laughs> Crypto is not really a talking point for our politicians really at all. Um, I don't remember the last time I heard one of them talk about crypto, but I mean, we're, we're just a very small country as well compared to, to the US. I mean, there's only like 25 million people here, right? So very small. So and our and our politics is generally very muted compared to the US. Like just to put this in context, the, I guess, campaign for when the new prime minister is getting voted in is like six weeks. <laughs> the campaign in the US for a president is like, what, 18 months? <laughs> yeah, so, at least. Yeah. And, and we have the same terms, I think, like four-year terms for, for our, our leaders. But um, the only stuff that I've seen lately has been our biggest bank, Commonwealth Bank, saying that they were going to impose a $10,000 deposit limit to crypto exchanges uh, per month um, because of scams. And mm. they weren't just using that as a cover point. <laughs> I looked up the stats. Last year in Australia, $3 billion was lost to scams. Not crypto <laughs> scams, just scams yes, generally. Sure, sure. Of 300 million of that was crypto scams. And I think they walked that back. Um, I uh, haven't uh, seen the that um, documented anywhere on the website or anything. So I think they actually walked that back. But I think they were just trying to protect people from getting scammed because uh, a lot of these, uh, what they do is that these scammers say, hey, send this money to this crypto exchange address, right? The um, the fiat to this deposit address. And then obviously it gets exchanged for crypto and then it gets sent off and there's no way to ever recover that money ever again because it's gone, right? Um, which, which speaks to how censorship resistant and decentralized something like Ethereum and Bitcoin is as well, uh, mind you, as a, as a side note there, which is pretty funny. Um, but uh, other than that, no, not really. Haven't seen anything yet. But in saying that, Australia is known for being quite uh, not authoritarian, but definitely doesn't question authority very much uh, as, a, as a populace. So I would say that something like this would unfortunately be probably not hard to get through if you really wanted to get something like this through. Um, and generally people who are into crypto in Australia, we have a very big gambling culture, unfortunately. Um, they like the speculative side of it. So they probably, you know, they probably wouldn't cry over the, uh, over something like this. <laughs> I would, I would love uh, an amendment uh, to you know, kind of all worldwide uh, charters of freedom and, and, and bill of rights and constitutions. It's like a, a right to private keys to own your own private keys. I, I think that's very important to enshrine. In the meanwhile, though, Bankless Nation, I guess the message is stay vigilant for these sorts of things. Uh, banning peer-to-peer -peer transactions is an absolute no-go. Uh, we got a few more things to discuss, Anthony. I want to get your take. Well, it's actually a question from the Bankless Nation about optimism switching to ZK proofs and the idea of a super chain. In the, in the super chain environment, will we still need a bridge? I also want to talk to you about uh, Mark Zuckerberg's new Twitter killer and see if that is worth uh, setting up your early thoughts on that. A few other things. What are your holdings during the bear market? We'll get to all of those things and more. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. You know Uniswap. It's the world's largest decentralized exchange with over $1.4 trillion in trading volume. You know this because we talk about it endlessly on Bankless. It's Uniswap, but Uniswap is becoming so much more. Uniswap Labs just released the Uniswap Mobile Wallet, 
for iOS, the newest, easiest way to trade tokens on the go. With a Uniswap wallet, you can easily create or import a new wallet, buy crypto on any available exchange with your debit card with extremely low fiat on-ramp fees, and you can seamlessly swap on Mainnet, Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism. On the Uniswap mobile wallet, you can store and display your beautiful NFTs, and you can also explore Web3 with the in-app search features, market leaderboards, and price charts, or use Wallet Connect to connect to any Web3 application. So you can now go directly to DeFi with the Uniswap mobile wallet. Safe, simple custody from the most trusted team in DeFi. Download the Uniswap wallet today on iOS. There is a link in the show notes. Arbitrum One is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum One, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum One and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Questions from the nation this week. This one from Kyle Kaplan, Bankless Citizen. Uh, the question goes, so if Optimism switches from optimistic fraud proofs to ZK proofs and chooses the ZK prover, will it reduce the need to bridge between networks? And would that make it the hyper super chain? Well, the hyper super chain, that's a, a new marketing <laughs> lingo I've not heard of. But this idea of Optimism switching from optimistic fraud proofs to ZK proofs, choosing the ZK sync um, uh, prover, what does that do? for bridges in general when an application deploys on the super chain, let's say, do we obviate the need for bridges? So from my understanding, the bridge is enshrined as part of the, the stack, right? So the bridge is still there, but it's enshrined in that all, for example, the OP stack chains can use that bridge and have the same security guarantees um, without having to have like extra assumptions baked in like these third party bridges. That's that's my understanding of it. And I think that's that's true for any enshrined bridge. Um, so, for example, there is an enshrined bridge on Ethereum layer one for the optimism chain, right? The, op the OP mainnet chain that you send your funds through and then you get them on OP mainnet. Uh, and that gives you the, the security of, of Ethereum L1 obviously because it's on ethereum l1 so if you have a bridge enshrined as part of the actual tech stack which is what op stack is doing with the super chain from my understanding then you would get the um the, the kind of similar benefits to that in terms of choosing like the zk sync prover instead of something else or instead of their homegrown prover i don't know for sure what this would look like but my intuition says that it wouldn't make it like a hyper super chain because you would still have um you would still have separate networks from my understanding. You would still have like the networks built on the ZK sync ZK stack, the ones built on the OP stack. And while they're sharing the same prover, they probably have other parts of their stack that are different enough that it wouldn't give you the same guarantees. But I think it's still very early days for stuff like this. I don't actually think any, I don't, I don't think anyone would have a, a good answer to this just yet. Maybe some of the people that are actually developing this would have those answers. Um, but yeah, it's still very early. And the fact that he, that um, Kyle is even asking this question speaks to how, uh, how close he's paying attention to, to these sorts of things. <laughs> I mean, to the extent we can um, kill, uh, eliminate the need for, 
like bridges with bad uh like multi-sig bridges these types of things there was a story this week that we didn't get to to jump on but this was a a let's see um another bridge that had a massive hack or something i think i deleted the the, the it was poly network it was, it was they, had, they had a hack yeah they've already been hacked and apparently they were hacked <laughs> the again, second but... hack for yeah. this bridge right <laughs> i mean yeah it was a it was a multi-sig one where they compromised i think uh i don't know if it was like a two or four or something but they compromised multiple signers on the multi-sig and that's how they were able to do it yeah. So with this type type of technology, like kind of the super chain technology, I don't know. I don't know about the uh, zk sync prover. Um, we are in layer twos, kind of obviating the need for these types of multi sig bridges. Like we're trying to eliminate bridges because bridges are basically security risks. Is, is that an oversimplification, or is that roughly right? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that there are different types of, of bridges, right? Like um, there's bridges that literally just act as an account that does like balances where it takes in assets and then spits out an IOU on the bridge chain. And then that could be protected by a multi-sig. Then there are bridges that uh, more look like Uniswap liquidity pools, for example, where you essentially are trading out of an asset into another one in order to get out of that L2 into another L2. And the people providing liquidity are the ones taking on that risk, essentially, that withdrawal risk or whatever. Um, and then there are the kind of enshrined bridges where, as I said, Optimism has one, Arbitrum one has one, where you send funds to on Ethereum L1 and then you get issued them on the L2. Um, so there's different types of contracts. But yeah, those those kind of like easy bridges, I like to call them, the ones that have multi-sigs on them, those need to go. Like we do not <laughs> yes, need those. We, <laughs> we need to kill the easy bridges, that's for sure. Uh, some takes of the week. Okay, um, threads. Is threads worth checking out so this is um of course uh elon uh put through some twitter rate limiting uh this week there was a maximum number of tweets that that um twitter users could could actually view uh i didn't get to a point where i exceeded that that maximum so it didn't affect me but a lot of people are are talking about uh the the meta competitor the zuckerberg competitor called threads i think crypto twitter was talking about it a little bit um is this worth looking at switching to i mean for me personally anthony I'm, I'm really waiting for like a a web3 twitter alternative replacement something like a, a lens or a farcaster to really take off um i'm not so excited about another centralized company so you switch from elon to zuckerberg like wow um but it mm -hmm. does feel like i don't know about you but like twitter is uh they're making some interesting design choices these days and I, I don't know that that's a good thing it hasn't proven to be a good thing to me have you taken a look at threads what's your overall take here yeah i mean i i signed up for an account because i already have an instagram account so it like forces you to sign up with with instagram which is i guess like typical meta because they want all their products to be integrated with each other so it makes sense um but yeah i mean I, i've spent the last you know five six years building up a twitter audience building up that network effect you know everyone's already on there i don't have the energy to do that again on one of these <laughs> platforms right i really don't um and and people really do undervalue how hard it is to break a network effect um like I, I agree with you that Twitter has been going downhill since since Musk bought it. I think that they're actually going to go bankrupt relatively soon because they're just bleeding cash. Um, they're bleeding cash so badly that the reason they put in that API limit was because Musk didn't want to renew the Google Cloud contract Jeez. with with Google because it like expired. So, lights off. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah. So it, I think what's going to happen is that like Elon probably. I don't know if his ego is going to let him do this, but he's probably going to have to sell Twitter, right? Like, the, unless he changes something to, to a point where he can actually keep making money and keep the lights on, I don't know how he's going to keep the lights on when it's bleeding so much money as is, because it's not cheap to host something like Twitter. Um, and then Threads comes along. 
Threads, okay, that, that it's going to be run better than Twitter just because uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's it's new. It's um, it's it's based on like Facebook and Instagram and, and they're run all right. You know, they're not doing any erratic moves or anything like that, but it doesn't have the network effect. And can it build their network effect? Can it actually peel people away from, from Twitter? I actually don't think so because as you said, it's basically just a clone um, in that it is centralized. It's the same product essentially. It's not offering anything new, right? Um, and also on, on top of that, it gives me Google Plus vibes. I don't know if people remember <laughs> Google Plus, yeah. but it was the social media platform that Google created to killer. try and kill Facebook. Yeah, and it didn't kill Facebook at all. It got shut down eventually because it just didn't really do anything good. Um, so yeah, as much as like Threads has that massive kickstart or head start of a network effect with the existing Instagram and Facebook user bases and stuff like that. I, I don't think that it's what they've got. The product they've got right now is enough to draw people over. It's literally a Twitter clone. It doesn't offer anything new. <laughs> I hope that crypto can kind of do something here, some sort of web three social messaging type tool with a crypto wallet embedded there's something mm -hmm. there and we we haven't quite found it but um, i'm hopefully that is is the real kind of twitter killer one thing that's interesting though is these platforms like twitter the idea of them becoming basically like um uh data sources for ais and ais being kind of mm -hmm. uh, free riders um this is a comment from a, a twitter user saying the timing of elon musk data scraping rules basically limiting the, the Twitter API and open AI widening the release of browsing function are not a coincidence. Pretty much all the content IP is going to need to move behind paywalls to blockchain or something similar to charge microtransactions for interactions and page views. I don't understand how ad-based internet business models are going to work if you can create content that's gobbled up by an LLM once and then shown to thousands of other people who might ask a similar question. Are advertisers paying when ChatGPT says clicking on a link this idea that like kind of the llms and the chat gpts of the world are basically just slurping up um all of the twitter content all of the web content all of these things and kind of breaking the ad model that has held web web 2 for so long because they're essentially free riders on top of all of this free content i think that's a fascinating idea and part of what might be going on at the highest level do you have any thoughts yeah, I mean, maybe, but like Musk is involved with OpenAI. I mean, he's one of the early, uh, I guess, like uh, investors, I think, and also on the board. So I, I don't know if I buy that argument, but at the same time, I get this, right? I get that it is definitely a concern, but there's also the other side of it where a lot of these kind of Web2 companies existed on VC money. They were subsidized by VC money, maybe not Twitter, but other companies that have existed and they, their IPO and their stock went to crap because they're not actually worth what they say they were. They don't make any money, right? They have revenue, but they do not have profit because they were just subsidized by VCs. Um, and a lot of them have to raise their prices now because that subsidy has run out um, because obviously VCs aren't interested in in subsidizing anything once it's IPO'd because they've exited, right? They're, they're, they're gone. That's, that's, that's that investment done. Um, so there is a there is a point here about data scraping and stuff like that. But if you're just going to paywall everything or limit things, what's going to end up happening is that the open platforms are just going to win anyway. I, I just I don't believe that um, that uh, this is going to succeed. I don't believe you can paywall everything. It's interesting. I, I do feel like there's some sort of evolution the internet is going to take in the the 2020s that uh, is going to surprise everyone. Uh, one other take I want to run by you this week. It's a take that I tweeted. It's one of those tweets where. I don't know if I fully agree with it myself, but I partially agree. 
Um, and it's just, you know, calling to question a, a, a mood right now. And that mood is crypto feels lost right now. Maybe it's just crypto Twitter, but the vibe, the mood has felt off in, um, in a lot of ways. At least some people have felt this way. And my question is, how can it find its way? I think you answered this question in the tweet. Um, a lot of people had a lot of great answers, including like, hey, Ryan, you're wrong. Crypto isn't lost at all. Like, um, I think you said something to the effect that, yeah, maybe crypto is lost, but Ethereum isn't. Uh, that was your take. What do you think about this feeling, this idea that 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 crypto is lost? Do you think that's just bear market sentiment? Um, what's your overall take? Yeah, so my reply actually got like a few replies that were upset with me. And they basically said, this is just the same thing as when Bitcoin maximalists say, you know, Bitcoin, not crypto, which wasn't my intention at all. I, I said, you know, crypto may be lost, um, but Ethereum isn't. Yeah, Ethereum is doing just fine. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't say like, uh, it actually someone replied, you know, this is this feels like a Bitcoin, not blockchain <laughs> moment for ETH bros. And I'm like, I didn't say that at all, right? Crypto is a really broad term. If you if you say crypto, you're referencing literally every single project in the crypto ecosystem, right? Every single token, coin, and whatever you want to whatever you want to call Including it. Including so, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, exactly, and Celsius exactly, and Alex Mashensky and all that. Yes, and most people would agree that 99% of that stuff is garbage, right? This trash, it's going to zero. It's it's literally not valuable. So I don't know why people were attacking me over this, but. That's why I said crypto may be lost because crypto consists of a lot of that stuff. Whereas the actual true signal, such as Ethereum, and there are other signals out there. I'm not going to name any specific ones, but there are other signals out there. They are doing just fine. But for me, I said Ethereum because that's the one I focus on. That's one I pay attention to. That's one I could speak to specifically if someone asked me. Um, and it really does feel like Ethereum is doing fine from that lens because we have the L2s thriving. DeFi is having a renaissance with DeFi. Um, the uh, new DeFi projects coming online, real world assets, stuff like that. So that's why I, I said this. But generally, yeah, I mean, I agree with your take that that crypto feels lost because th there was this kind of narrative in 2021, the multi-chain narrative, right? That was one of the big narratives. Like everyone's saying it's going to be a multi-chain world. We're all going to use these different L1s. They're all going to talk to each other, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, okay. Like, I got that thesis back then, but I, even though I didn't agree with it, but I think that thesis has, has mostly been disproven that it's not just going to be all these uh, different L1s, it's going to be L2s. And where do L2s live predominantly, and almost all of them? Ethereum, right? So that's why Ethereum is doing just fine, because we've just seen crypto explode and, and just go to go to zero, basically, a lot of the time, um, whereas Ethereum has, has thrived. So that was my main main take on it. Yeah, there's certainly more like blockchain Ethereum infrastructure being built than at any point in, in history. It's like absolutely phenomenal to, to see. This is Eric Wall's take, which I thought was also interesting. What you're experiencing is the realization that crypto isn't the new coolest thing. AI is the new coolest thing. Thing. That might be part of it too, right? Crypto really mm -hmm. had a mm -hmm. kind of a cultural moment in 2021, 2022, and then sort of an epic downfall in culturally. And now everyone is talking about AI. And so um, I think maybe that mood has sort of uh, you propagated across crypto Twitter as well. Uh, but let's turn to something maybe even more interesting, Anthony, which is um, what you're bullish on. And the thing I want to ask you this week is actually um, what are you holding? in terms of assets through this bear market. So um, I tweeted out earlier, so I was just thinking about it, things I'm not selling, things I'm holding during the bear market. ETH, I still have some Bitcoin, um, layer two tokens, to me, they're still very bullish, and uh, blue chip DeFi. Those are probably 
my highest conviction holdings. A lot, lot, a lot of other things that are like not as high conviction, but these are things I'm, I'm holding during, I held during the, the bull run and I'm continuing to hold during the, the bear cycle. Um, my take is selling these uh, in the bear market would be a, a colossal mistake. Uh, how about you? What what does your list look like in terms of categories of things that you are holding during the bear market? Yeah, I, I think we have probably similar lists here. Um, I haven't actually bought anything except ETH for for quite a while now with like fresh fiat or anything like that. I usually just just buy ETH. Um, but in terms of positions I've held for a, a while, I mean, I've been public about um, Matic being my my kind of like second largest holding, and I've, I've held that for a while. Um, that, as you mentioned, we're we're advisors, so it, um, that was kind of from there. But I could have, you know, I could have sold it all and 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 be done with it. But I, I held it because I I'm I'm obviously bullish on Polygon as a project, but not to single them out. Um, I'm bullish on L2s generally, uh, and and Polygon is obviously at the heart of it. But along with Optimism and Arbitrum, and a lot of these things, I'm an angel investor in too. So I have a a, a long list of um of companies that I've angel invested in. Some are liquid, some are not. Right, you know, there's vesting times and stuff attached to it. But in terms of of public market stuff. It really is, yeah. Just ETH, the L2 tokens generally. Um, you know, as I mentioned, DeFi. DeFi has been a funny one for me because I don't currently hold any like large positions in DeFi tokens. Um, I have angel invested in a few of the new DeFi protocols that I was talking about, the ones that feel like they're actually innovating. But I haven't, um, you know, bought any uh, on the open market or anything like that in, in a little while. Um, and then I have some other tokens like uh, Rockpool or RPL um, because I'm a node operator and. Part of the ODAO as well, which which you're a part of too, or which Bankless is a part of, I should say. So yeah, just stuff like that. But I would say like it's all heavily concentrated within the Ethereum ecosystem. I own no Bitcoin, uh, like literally zero Bitcoin. I own no Alt L1s. Um, the last Alt L1 I had was was Dot, and I had that because or Polkadot, <laughs> and I had that because I bought it at the ICO end of 2017, and then it went live like three years later, and I traded it for ETH, and that turned out to be a good trade because ETH <laughs> went up after that. <laughs> but other than that, no, that it's just heavily concentrated traded in the Ethereum ecosystem. And I'm the same as you. Like, I think selling any of that stuff now is, is a colossal mistake because bear markets aren't for selling, right? Unless, you, unless you're forced to sell for whatever reason, um, or unless you're, you're selling something that you truly believe is just dead and is not going to go back up in, in the bull market. But other than that, no, I, I feel like, yeah, selling during these bear markets and these crab markets uh, just not the way to play it. Um, I, I feel like you should be accumulating your favorite things you th think th are going to do well. And then if you want to sell, you sell when things are, are hot when when people are coming up with narratives like super cycle again <laughs> yeah i mean look investing is as simple as a sell when it's going up and you buy when it's down right i mean like i i don't know it's funny uh, you say it's simple but like that you know you unpack that and the complexities <laughs> approach infinity because it should be that simple but humans being humans we make it complex <laughs> well, we do we do definitely make it complex uh, speaking of that we got the meme of the week this week anthony sasano so this is a tweet that uh, i think both of us found humorous if you believe in the gansler step down news you're exactly the person gansler want to protect so yeah. uh, there's a lesson here in this um I guess retail needs to up its game, be smarter about mm -hmm. trusting sources. Is is that the lesson that this uh, meme is is sharing for us? Yeah, I mean, th there's layers to this meme, um, and you know, I, I I loved it because basically what it's saying is that. If you don't want to be regulated, stop being someone who should be regulated. <laughs> like it's that's that's my takeaway from it. Like if you want personal responsibility, right? You need to take personal responsibility when things want, are bad. Yeah, if you don't want to be treated like a child, don't act like a child. I mean, that's disparaging yes. on children, but like have some maturity, have some <laughs> personal responsibility here. 
that's what um, basically crypto is. It's all about taking responsibility over your money, your finances, your life decisions. Uh, hopefully you're ready for that. Uh, Bankless Nation, uh, this has been the roll up this week. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. Um, by the way, can you do a quick, tell us about the daily Gway, okay? Tell us about the refuel and what you're doing every day on your channel. Uh, and uh, I think you guys are uh, spinning up a new podcast, you and Eric Connor as well. Not in, I should say resurrecting an old podcast and making mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. new again. So give us the latest there. Yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, a lot of people, if they know me already, they'll know me from from the Daily Gway, which is uh, kind of, it's like it's an Ethereum media, um, uh, I guess, uh, ecosystem, uh, similar to Bankless, um, but it is definitely more of a of a, of a kind of like uh, public good, uh, where it's like no, nothing's monetized or anything like that. Um, but I've, I've done that on purpose, because it's really just me every weekday, you know, going for about 30 minutes talking about Ethereum, things happening in Ethereum, uh, for anyone who wants that and going deeper into a lot of things as well, like, pretty deep on, on something sometimes people will know me for my rants on there about certain things not not um bearish rants bullish rants as they like to call them <laughs> i go on my bullish rants a lot but but yeah it's basically just there for people that want to stay up to date with ethereum but i also do it a, a lot um i ask i guess I, ask, I get asked this question a lot by people like why do you do it you know why do you do it for free you know you could easily monetize this blah blah, blah. i'm like well for me, it's just like something that I do to keep myself engaged as well, like and and keep myself up to date with things because I find that the more I repeat something, the more it just sticks in my head. I know that's not a, a you know a unique insight, but for me, that's that's kind of like how I work um, really well to retain information. And I feel like it's a waste to just keep it in my head. So I want to I want to impart that kind of uh, knowledge and wisdom on, on other people. Uh, and you mentioned the podcast that has been resurrected with Eric Connor. Yeah, so for those who are OGs, you'll know that Eric Connor and I used to do a podcast called Into the Ether. Uh, back, uh, we started that in late 2018. Uh, we did that once a week where we recapped the, the the latest news in the Ethereum ecosystem. And then we kind of sunset Ethub um, during the, I guess, like bull market, um, essentially. Uh, and then we've resurrected it recently where every two weeks, Eric Connor and I on the Daily Gway will be doing a, a, a podcast for about 45 minutes an hour, uh, just talking about our views on Ethereum. And Eric brings a lot of unique insights to um you know to to the uh, to the refuel or not the refuel to the daily way because you know people listening to me all the time you know you can kind of get used to my insights but eric has has really great takes on things so i'm excited to be back with him on on that one there but yeah thanks ryan for letting me do my little my little shield there well, big plus <laughs> one on those resources uh no one works harder and, and goes deeper than anthony sasano in the daily way and um really excited to to see into the ether being resurrected in this uh, new form has always been one of my favorite podcasts uh, Bankless Nation, got to end with this as we always do. Of course, none of this has been financial advice. Crypto is risky. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everyone.